This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Bite pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Bite, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon first bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hello, First Bite folks. Uh, it's Michelle again. I just wanted to touch base. I know I alluded to it last month, but heads up, I am coming to the Midwest later this month. So if you've enjoyed listening to First Bite virtually, then come join me for a six-hour ASHA and AYOTA, as well as early intervention approved uh, live lecture course. I'm giving my pediatric dysphagia, establishing the brain-mouth-gut connection in Toledo, Ohio on Wednesday, January 23rd. And then on Thursday, January 24th, I am in Indianapolis, Indiana. And on Friday, January 25th, I am in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you're interested in coming, make sure that you bring latex-free gloves, come with the drink, and a good snack because we will be practicing what we preach and we will be feeding your fellow classmate. So, you know, on the off chance that there's a nut allergy in the room, please don't bring anything with nuts in it. If you're interested in coming and enjoying a day of live lectures, laughter, and a fair amount of nerdy Michelle, then be sure to register. You can find the registration links on pessy.com. P-E-S-I dot com, or as always on my own website, heartwoodspeechtherapy.com, or check it out on the Heartwood Speech Therapy Facebook page. So I hope all is well in your world and that I get to catch you later this month. Thanks. Bye. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you.
Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Welcome back to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in both the fed and functional category, and I'm trying not to fangirl too much over here, as today we are talking all things SOS approach to feeding with the Dr. K. Toomey, and I'm totally fangirling. Um, So that's a thing. Uh, I first came across the SOS approach a few years ago while observing the colleague's speech therapy feeding session, and I was amazed at how methodical her approach was. Methodical, but fun and therapeutic for the kid that she was working with. After a bit of research, I found out that it was a bit more involved than the oversimplified kiss it and tell it goodbye description that had basically been crash course to me standing in the hallway between patients. And after digging into the SOS approach, I found that I loved that it was designed by a pediatric psychologist. Why? Well, folks, we are SLPs, OTs, EIs. We are not psychologists. And I firmly believe that they have a critical role to play when treating our patients. And they need to be not only invited to the table as lip service, but truly involved in treatment and plan of care development. Again, some of you are thinking, why? Well, for some of these kiddos that we treat, it's not an oral pharyngeal dysphagia that we see. It's more than a sensory-based feeding aversion. They might not have a major underlying anatomical structural disorder. It could truly be a feeding disorder with a fair amount of stress. And I don't know about you, but that sure wasn't covered in depth in my dysphagia class a million years ago. So that's why I want a skilled child psychologist involved in my patient's plan of care. So on that note, do, 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 I am thrilled and humbled to introduce Dr. Kay Toomey, president of Toomey and Associates Incorporate and clinical consultant to the feeding clinic at Star Institute. So Dr. Toomey, how in the world did you go from a psychologist to establishing the SOS approach and how cool and amazing has that journey been? Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for inviting me. I'm very happy to be with you and to join your colleagues and my colleagues who are on the podcast with us uh, today and whenever they're going to be joining us. So I just wanted to say thank you before we got started. And um, my journey is going to set us back quite a bit in time uh, because I've been in the field about 30, 35 years. And I got involved very early on in the field when the prevailing belief of the medical community was that when children didn't eat, it was their parents' fault. And at the time, uh, in the early 1980s, we were just really starting to use more and more gastrostomy tubes. And the things that we call gastrostomy tubes today are really actually gastrostomy buttons. And we call them G-tubes or gastrostomy tubes really because of the history. And that is because when we first started putting tubes in kids, what we would do is take an adult urine Foley catheter, and we would stitch it into the child's stomach and we would put a hemostat clamp on the end of it to make sure nothing leaked out. And that was my first experience in working with a kid who didn't eat. And I was asked as a psychologist on the medical team at the time to go in and evaluate this child and family who had just had this pretty major procedure done uh, because having a G-tube in the 80s was a major surgical procedure. And the feeling was that that she had to get this YouTube because her parents uh, were somehow not feeding her appropriately and that I, as the psychologist, was supposed to go in and fix this family. And when I went in to work with the family and the child, what I discovered is I had a very warm, lovely, delightful set of parents who were doing everything that everybody told them to try to get their child to eat and a child who really wasn't physically competent to do the task. And and so that's what got me interested in the field, because I wanted to know as a psychologist, 
why did everybody blame the parents when this kid didn't eat? Um, and, and really over the years of working in the field, what the research shows is that the parents are the cause of a child's feeding problem in only about 5 to 10% of the cases in reality. There's certainly things we do as parents that makes our kid eating better, and there's things we do, unfortunately, that makes it worse. Um, but in general, parents are not the cause of a child not eating. And, and that's really been one of the myths out there about eating that's been very hard for us to undo over the years. Um, because at first, all the disciplines used to work separately. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, many of the larger institutions, and I had gone to Children's Hospital in Denver, uh, were starting to look at the fact that eating is much more complicated than what a single discipline could actually understand or address, and starting to put together multidisciplinary teams. And so that's what we did as well, is we got together the seven different departments in our hospital uh, who said they worked with kids who didn't eat and didn't grow. And we all met for an entire year as part of a monthly feeding consortium. And out of that, it, the SOS approach to feeding program was developed. We created a multidisciplinary assessment approach uh, to looking at the kids who came in to see us in our different departments. And then we very quickly realized if we were going to do assessment, we'd better create a multidisciplinary treatment approach as well. And so the SOS Approach to Feeding Program actually stands for sequential oral sensory because those are the major components that need to be a part of any feeding program, feeding assessment, feeding team. But SOS also stands for Save Our Ship. Um, because when you're the parent of a child who doesn't eat, you feel like you're drowning multiple times a day because there are few things we do as parents with our children repeatedly over the course of the day, and feeding is one of them. Depending on the age of your child, you are going to be sitting down and potentially eating or feeding your child somewhere between 4 and 11 times a day. And, and so when parents say to you, all I do is feed this kid, well, yeah, they're right. <laughs> that is well, kind of all they do all day is feed their kids. Uh, and so it's, it, it's, it's a challenge and you do feel like you're drowning if it's not going well. So that, that gives you a, a, a little bit of the history. It's, it, I'm a bit of an anomaly. There, there are um, some other pediatric psychologists like myself who are involved in the field, and I do try to keep a list of them and keep track of them uh, just because, you know, it, it, it's so much of a rehab type of issue. But I would have to say over the years of working with OT, speech, you know, physicians, dietitians, mental health, those are the five members of our team that I just really have learned so much from my colleagues from the other disciplines. And at this point in time, to me, you know, it, it, it feels like I spend as much time in the OT and the speech uh, world as I do um, in the psychology world anymore. So. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. I'm just, I'm still stuck on the fact that the original G-Tube was basically clamped shut and yeah. trying to envision that there, there was, have you read the book, um, Gulp by Mary Roach? Uh, I have read the book Gulp by Mary Roach. It's a <laughs> fascinating, fascinating book. And and one of the things I love so much, and I actually talk about in our courses, is the, the fact that, that there are laboratories around the world that study at what decibel crunch you hear of food in your head <laughs> and decide that it's fresh or not. Um, and we talk directly about that because it, it absolutely, sound plays a role in eating and people don't mm -hmm. think about it it, but it really does. That, I can vouch for that. My mother-in-law likes to know when I'm going to teach my brother-in-law to chew with his mouth closed. And I gently remind her, he's not going to do that until you get his adenoids and his tonsils out. And she goes, yeah, it doesn't do well under anesthesia. And I'm like, well, then we're going to agree that this is fine the way it is. But um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's just jump right in. Um, saving our ship. I think I'm going to canoodle that one for a little bit longer. All right. Let's Let's jump right into the questions here. Um, first one up, um, and 
I, I practice in rural South Carolina, I mean, rural South Carolina and Tuesdays and Thursdays, I very frequently throw out my front end alignment on dirt roads with potholes in it. Um, and, or one time there was a loose cow. So that's a fun story for another day. But I have heard from a lot of people and professionals that children are just picky eaters and they will grow out of it. And I have done my attempt at explaining to these pediatricians, no, it's more than that. Um, but can you please explain the truth to that statement and or lack thereof? <laughs> Absolutely. And and I, I think if we're trying to talk to physicians about this, the challenge, of course, is being able to present the data to them. And and there is quite a bit of data out. And, and the data has become more and more clear really over the last five to 10 years. I would have to say we have not had great data in the field until the last five to 10 years. We're actually a pretty new field. We've only been around for about 30, 40 years, which is a drop in the bucket compared to uh, medicine. But the, the data that we, does, that we do have does show that around the world, so regardless of culture, regardless of country, regardless of parenting practices, about 20 to 30% of all children are going to struggle with some kind of feeding challenge somewhere within the first five to six years of life. Um, and, And what the research also indicates is only about a half to a third of those children are going to actually outgrow their feeding challenges. So that's really different than what most people um, think about. Within that set of kids who are struggling with feeding challenges, about 5% of those kids are going to have persistent feeding difficulties. And they are going to be the children who are going to be showing up in their physician's offices with the parent complaining about the child's picky eating, struggling to get the kid to eat, struggling to get them to grow every time or most of the time that the parent's coming into the office. And and those are really the kids that we need to find. So we talk about the the general 20 to 30% of kids who are going to struggle at some point with some kind of eating issue as our picky eaters. And and as I said, about half of those kids are going to outgrow it. And then we talk about the 5% of kids who are just persistently difficult to feed as our problem feeders. Um, You know, the problem feeders, it's really critical that we find them because those kids are not growing well, and frequently there's some other developmental issue going on as well. Um, but even the picky eaters we want to try to find is in addition. And some of the studies for people to think about talking to physicians about is there's a very well-known study called the FITS study here in the United States. Um, It's feeding infants and toddlers study. And the original version was done by Carruth uh, and her group in 2004. And then it was redone by Sega Reese in 2011. And, And basically what they showed is already by the introduction of about four to six months of age, as soon as you introduce complimentary foods, about 20% of parents are reporting their kids as being very picky. Um, and that number is going to increase until we hit our terrific twos. Um, and, and those kids are going to come in at 50% of two-year-olds are being reported by their parents as being very picky. Um, in this particular study, there were not significant differences in the kids' nutrient intake. And one of that is because a criteria for inclusion was you had to be above the fifth percentile for height and weight. Um, we can look at a more recent study from 2013 done actually in Thailand. And what they looked at is kids coming into their well child check, and they found 27% of the kids actually had beyond uh, picky eating. And again, we see this developmental trend where they saw about 28% of the kids around a year um, as struggling, about 27% of our terrific twos in their study. So these are kids who have very significant feeding challenges. And then about 20% uh, after the age of three. 
study out of Canada is going to show if you're looking at kids between two and a half and five, 30% of parents are going to be reporting at one point or another that their kids are struggling with some kind of feeding difficulty. Um, and then there's a very well-known longitudinal study out of England uh, that's called the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. And they have been studying these children in this data set since 1991. And, and so the longitudinal study, of course, is the key piece of this because we can look at what's going on today and we have the data of what they were like when they were younger. But of course, when we were collecting the data originally, we didn't know what the kids were going to go on and be diagnosed as. And, and they actually show in their research that the problem feeders, the three to five percent of the kids in their study who had significant feeding problems, problems with growth, go on later on in life. So if, if you already were having significant feeding difficulties between six and 12 months of age, you went on by 18 and 30 months of age to get some other kind of developmental disorder diagnosis. So a motor delay diagnosis, a language delay diagnosis, um, behavioral issues. And um, in that study, in addition, what they showed is that if you take, for example, the kids who later on in life get a developmental disorder diagnosis, like, for example, kids on the autism spectrum, and you go back and look at their early feeding issues and other developmental um, you know, activities, what you find is the kids who went on to be diagnosed with autism in the ALSPEC study presented first with feeding problems. They presented first with feeding problems. It was the first red flag that something about these kids' development wasn't on target. And what they showed is that kids who later went on to get an autism diagnosis had um, delayed introduction of solid foods, not because the parents were attempting to feed them, but because the children were refusing to eat the complementary foods. Um, by a little over a year of age, they are reported as difficult to feed. They're eating a different diet than their peers by a little over a year of age. And by two years of age, they're eating a different diet than the rest of their family. And so it, it, it's it's a very big issue that we as professionals need to talk to our medical colleagues about because there's a tendency out there when parents say, my child's a picky eater, for us as professionals to say, oh, all kids are picky, they'll all outgrow it. Well, first of all, we know that, that not all kids are picky. Um, and, and as long as they're not two years of age, it's only about 20% of kids are going to be picky. And as I said, we know that only about half of those kids are going to outgrow it. And in fact, the challenges that a child's having from an eating standpoint should mean that those are the kids that we flag and pay attention to the most because they may go on and have some other problem. And in fact, the study out of Canada showed that the children who were persistently difficult to feed between two and a half and five years of age had body mass indexes under the 10th percentile by the age of five, which is an indicator of poor nutrition. And so it's really something, you know, that we need to help professionals understand is, is we don't want to panic the parents who are coming to us saying my child is picky, but we, we don't always, we don't want to disregard what they're saying either. Now, those parents who come in and say this kid is picky and they're picky eaters, those kids, we need to put a star on their chart or somehow flag them as a child who needs closer monitoring because that child is at a much more significant risk for some kind of, of feeding difficulty. So uh, go ahead. Th then how do we explain to the physicians the difference between picky eating versus problem feeding? So, so we've developed over the years of being in the field, some ways to help providers 
understand how worried you need to be. Um, and we actually have created a list of criteria that differentiate for us between the picky eater and the problem feeder. And, and in, in fact, in our practice, if we have somebody in regular OT or PT or speech and the therapist is saying, hey, the parent is coming to me really concerned about their child's eating. Is this, you know, a big enough concern that we should have them in therapy? We actually have the, um, the parents take our picky eaters versus problem feeder handout and circle which of these criteria fit their child. And so um, a, a picky eater, for example, when you count up the number of different foods that they eat, most of them have somewhere around 30 or more foods in their food repertoire. Um, and when I talk about counting up foods that kids eat on a regular basis, I don't mean that you just write down, okay, they eat beef, they eat chicken, they eat crackers. Uh, because a food is different to a child based on its sensory properties and what kind of oral motor skill you need to eat it. Um, so you have to talk about the fact that if your child eats a hamburger, that's actually a really different food than if they eat steak. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if there's they a eat, lot more to that one. <laughs> yeah. If, if they eat an actual, you know, slab of chicken breast, that is really different than eating a chicken nugget. Um, and so, so, you know, eating something like a, uh, Triscuit, uh, cracker is really different than eating something like a goldfish cracker. Um, so, so you want to think a little more broadly when you make up your list of how many foods is my child eating. Um, so those picky eaters usually are somewhere around 30, but those problem feeders, those kids are going to come in at under 20 foods in their food repertoire. And Do you have I'm sorry, do you have a copy of this list that if individuals wanted to like use in their practice? Sure, is it yeah, they can the absolutely website? go to the SOS Approach website and they can get a copy of the Picky Eaters versus Problem Feeders handout. Um, so it's www.sosapproach.com and they can go to um, just the main website and, and they should be able to find the download for this handout. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just no thinking, problem. I know somebody out there listening is thinking, how do I get this list? This list yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that we see is that um, uh, there's a phenomenon out there that we call food jagging. Uh, a food jag is when somebody wants to eat the same food over and over again, um, you know, either multiple times a day or multiple times during the week. Uh, you know, everybody food jags. I always say that's why most of us have about three half-eaten boxes of cereal in our cupboards because you get about a box and a half through and then you're like, blah, I don't want that anymore. And then you switch to pancakes and then you're sick of that and then you switch to bagels and you get sick of those. Um, because the other piece of food jags that what happens to all of us when we food jag long enough on a food is we get sick and tired of it and we don't want to eat it anymore. So we talk about that as being called burnout. Um, most of us, if we food jag on a food, we burn out on it. If we take about a two week break and you give that food to us again, we'll eat it again. And that's what you see with kids who are picky eaters. If, if they food jag, burn out on a food, get sick and tired of it, as long as you give them a break of two to four weeks, they'll come back and eat that food again. When you do that with a child who's a true problem feeder, if they burn out on a food, you give them a two-week break. When you represent the food to them, they either act like they've never seen it before in their lifetime, even though they just lived on peanut butter sandwiches for the last two years of their life at lunch, um, or they act like it's the worst evil thing you could possibly have ever given them on the planet. And, and so what happens with kids who are problem feeders is they burn out on um, – cereal and then cereal is completely gone out of their food range. Then they burn out on pancakes and pancakes are completely gone. Then they burn out on French toast and French toast is completely gone. And this is how we see as therapists, kids who come to us at, you know, four or five years of age or older, six or seven, 
who only have 10 foods in their food repertoire when maybe they were a year, two years of age, and they had more like 20 or 30. It's because they've been allowed to food jag and they burn out and now that food is gone. And, and that's a pretty classic presenting picture for a problem feeder. Um, another difference between picky eaters and problem feeders is that uh, if you give a picky eater a new food that they've not seen before, they'll do what I call kind of piss and moan at you. They'll fuss about the fact you've given them something new. Um, they won't typically just dive in and eat it like other kids will do. Um, but a problem feeder, when you give them a new food on their plate, they just have a massive meltdown. Um, they cry, they throw, they leave the table, they run away, they crawl under the table. Um, so it, so the difference between the picky eater and problem feeder is really that degree. How, how severe of a reaction is this child going to be having? With picky eaters, um, if you look at their food list, uh, you are going to see that they eat one food from pretty much every nutrition group. Um, even if their only fruit or veg vegetable is applesauce, or maybe their only fruit or vegetable is apple juice, um, they have something that goes in each of those categories. Even if their only main protein is really milk, they have something that goes in that, that, those categories or, um, Maybe their only puree that they'll eat is is chocolate pudding, but they at least have something that goes in that category. What you're going to see with the problem uh, feeder is that they will have complete categories of foods that have nothing in it. So they don't eat a single puree. They don't eat anything that's crunchy at all. Um, they have no fruits. They have no vegetables. Um, and, and so you see there's big holes in the diet of the child who's a problem feeder. Another thing that we see, um, and this is definitely um, comes out of the research uh, specifically, is that those picky eaters are going to oftentimes be sitting down with their family to eat, but they're eating some different foods. So, you know, the parents doing what we refer to as short order cooking. So everybody else in the family is having, you know, spaghetti and meatballs and salad, and the picky eater has some chicken nuggets on their plate as well. Um, you know, so they're, the parents are kind of making two different meals, but at least they're sitting down and trying to eat together. That's not what you see with the problem feeder. Problem feeders typically are eating completely different foods than the rest of the family. They won't let any of the family foods be on their plate, like the picky eater maybe eats the garlic bread out of your spaghetti and meatballs and salad and garlic bread dinner along with their chicken nugget. Um, but the, the problem feeder won't eat anything at all that the family is eating. And oftentimes they're not eating with their family either. They're frequently being fed at a completely separate time. Sometimes they're being fed in a completely different room like on the couch in front of the television or in their bedroom with their iPad or their computer. Um, and obviously this is just a huge problem because if they don't ever see any food except the foods that they eat, how are they ever going to learn to eat any other food? But it's a trap that we see families get into when they have problem feeders. The other major um, difference we see in between picky eaters and problem feeders is that picky eaters are going to, at some of the well child checks, be described like that by the parent. So maybe at the 18 month, the parent's saying, yeah, they're really picky. But at the three year, they're like, no, they're eating better. And then they come back at the five year check and they're saying, yeah, they're really picky again. So, so, so docs are going to hear sometimes they're described as picky, sometimes they're not described as picky. Um, that's usually your picky eater. The kids who the doc is hearing at 12 months, 18 months, two years, three years, four years, five years, et cetera, the parent is saying, I can't get this kid to eat. 
They're picky. Nobody can get them to eat. We're struggling to get them to gain weight. Those kids are the problem feeders. And those are the kids we need to get our medical colleagues to be able to pay attention to and flag as the child that needs to be watched. Like I said, the data from um, the author's name is Dubois from the Dubois study in Canada shows that those kids end up with body mass indexes under the 10th percentile indicating they're in a state of malnutrition. Uh, and then the, the last criteria for picky eaters versus problem feeders has to do with how quickly and how easily you can learn to eat a new food. So a lot of people out there believe that eating is a two-step process. You sit down, you eat. <laughs> we like to talk about in our courses that many professionals think eating is a three-step process. You sit down, you touch the food, and then you eat it. Um, and actually, neither of those is accurate. What we find is children who are typical eaters are going to learn to eat a new food in about 15 to 20 steps uh, in the process of the steps to eating. Um, kids who are picky eaters are going to be more like in the 20 to 25 steps to learn to eat a new food. And children who are problem feeders are going to be closer in what we call the 32-step range. Uh, and, and in SOS, that is what we talk about. We talk about to learn to eat new foods with children who have significant feeding difficulties. On average, we're seeing it's about a 32-step process. So that puts you in the problem feeders. If you're working with kids on the autism spectrum, probably more in the 40 to 60 steps in their steps to eating hierarchy. So those, those are going to be the major criteria that we um, look at here. And so we have seven major criteria. And we talk to families about if, you know, you have two to three of the criteria for the problem feeder, you really need to think about getting your child in to have some therapy. Um, if you only have two or three of the picky eater and none of the problem feeder, maybe you, you know, would want to see a therapist, maybe it's not going to be a big priority. Um, but if you have more than two or three total uh, uh, of picky eater or problem feeder criteria, that's, that's an indicator that it's important that you talk to a therapist. This podcast is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. SpeechTherapyPD.com is an engaging, evidence-based continuing education site that offers over 450 continuing education hours. The best part? The information garnered can be applied in therapy immediately. It's functional and fabulous without the hassle of trying to translate technical jargon from a research article. Can I entice you more? Well, then get your suntan lotion ready because next summer, SpeechTherapyPD.com is hosting a CEU cruise. That's right. July 27th through August 3rd of 2019, the amazing, delightful, and oh-so-kind Char Beauchart, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, will be the featured speaker for 12-plus continuing education hours on a cruise ship through Greece. That's right. You heard it right. Greece. Want to get the preview or want to catch a preview of the information she's going to share? Then tune into her pod course, The Speech Link, which is also eligible for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Maybe, oh, just maybe, I'll see y'all in Greece. All right. So one of the things that popped up in my mind when you were describing the picky versus problematic and the dinner table salad spaghetti was um, my sweet baby brother, who's the reason I'm a speech therapist, only eating white bread, mayonnaise, provolone sandwiches and food jagging for the summer till he burned out. And then he went through the cycle all over again, like, you know, a month later. <laughs> yeah. My stepmom was like, don't worry, it's good for him. He he will outgrow this. And he did. He's like 6'3 and like cut out of wood. But I mean, he basically survived off of provolone mayo white bread sandwiches for a summer. <laughs> so. Uh -huh. so so he was one of the lucky ones who who outgrew it. He uh, was. But he also had a cleft. 
He had a cleft of his um, lip and it, he had to have his nair repaired when he was 17 and wow. um, with difficulty latching. And he was diagnosed with a flaccid dysarthria and not apraxia when he was four. So, wow. but so like everything you were describing, I have seen as a clinician and it's kind of interesting to me that, yes, I saw that as a clinician, but I saw that as a kid growing up. And he's the reason I'm a speech therapist. So it was just kind of, it is interesting. So yes. So, okay. it, and, and, and it's that, that difficulty that, you know, we have is trying to figure out, okay, who is going to outgrow this? Who isn't going to outgrow this? And then we don't actually have the data or the research to understand what is the nutritional cost to the body to spend three months just living on white bread and provolone sandwiches. Um, you know, we know that from a nutrition standpoint, globally, that's not a horrible diet because you're getting carbs, you're getting fat, you're getting protein, you're not getting fruit and vegetables, so vitamins and minerals. And, and we just don't know actually how long can you go with that level of nutrition and not have a consequence to the body. Yes. Well, I mean, he was, like you said, one of the lucky ones, so it worked out. But I think all the milk he drank and the soccer he played balanced. But um, okay. Absolutely. You get a lot of vitamins and minerals out of milk. And as long as you're drinking milk, you can actually keep up your nutrition pretty well. Yep. He, he was the one that my mom had to get like a second um, fridge for to keep all the gallons out, I mean, <laughs> even into high school. But I mean, I'm the oldest of five. We were going to need a second fridge any which way you shook it. <laughs> so like, there it is. Okay. Well, we, um, um, I'm, I'm checking our time and we've got about um, 15 minutes left so that we can still be respective to give the folks um, time for Q&A at the end, because I know there will be Q&A questions at the end. Sure. Um, so, um, and we had a couple more that we wanted to cover. So do you want to go through... Um, uh, how we as professionals can help children to eat better? Do you want to jump right into SOS approach to feeding? Um, where would you like to um, go? I'll let take me see if I can this, uh, swing kind of both of them. Um, I was just trying to also uh, look through uh, our questions. There they are. Um, so I, I, th I think, like I said, let me let me see if I can take take both of them. How do how do we help? kids who are struggling with their eating. What we want to think about as professionals is to help parents understand the complexity of eating and to um, really think about what are some concrete, straightforward interventions that we can do as professionals that will be helpful to families instead of getting in their way. And one of the biggest things we can do as professionals is help parents understand the role of postural stability in eating. So when we talk about why children don't eat, a lot of people think that um, kids don't eat because either they have bad parents or they're just, they have a behavioral problem. And, and of course, as a parent, when you tell a parent your child has a behavioral feeding problem, what the parent hears is you have a stubborn, obnoxious, willful little brat who isn't eating to piss everybody off, right? Um, and, and what we know is that feeding issues are, are not all in the kid's head. Feeding issues are not all in how the parents parent. Feeding issues have to do with how the child's body does or doesn't work correctly. And, and, and that can range from the child having an issue with organ systems or muscle systems or how they learn or what their sensory processing is, or maybe they're just not on track from a developmental standpoint, um, or they don't have good nutrition. So there, there's lots of physical reasons why kids don't eat well, um, including skill deficits. And one of the th things that we find really gets in kids' way, especially kids who have any kind of muscle, motor issue, muscle tone issue, um, focusing, attention issues, uh, and certainly even oral motor issues is our ability to sit up, to sit in a steady position, 
and then be fully focused on the meal at hand. And the problem around postural stability is that most children are put in either high chairs or adult seating arrangements. And unfortunately, neither high chairs nor adult seats are going to give kids good postural stability. The key to having good postural stability is that the child is sitting in a position that puts their hips at 90 degrees, their knees at 90 degrees, and their ankles at 90 degrees. So that means when a child sits in a chair, they need to be far enough forward in the chair that their knees drop over the front edge of the chair. So that means they usually need some kind of back support to get them far enough up in the chair to be supported and have their knees drop off the front edge of that chair. And then we have to have a footrest. And we make kids sit for anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes with no support for their feet. So I want you to think about the last time you went to a restaurant where um, you were at a tall top table or a bar and you got the bar stool that had no rung to it. How incredibly annoying that is and how hard it is to sit still and focus on what you're supposed to be doing. So the, the first thing that we really want to encourage professionals to do is really look at the child's posture, their muscle systems, and their postural stability. And, and if the child is not in a good, solid, stable seating arrangement, get them in that 90-90 position. Uh, well, it's 90-90-90 position and make sure they have a footrest in place. And, and you'll be amazed at how big of an intervention that is for um, families. And then the other thing we'd like to see professionals do is be able to help the parents come to the table with the understanding that the parent's job is to teach their child how to eat. And, and if we're going to help kids learn how to eat, what are some of the best ways to do that? We know to teach kids anything, we need to have a routine in which they're learning it. We need to have a set place for them to learn this task. And we ha need to have a series of strategies to help them learn about something. And we know that children learn best through play. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating to me that we teach kids, you know, their words and the alphabet by teaching them songs and drawing pictures. And we teach them their colors and, and, and all sorts of, you know, sports and everything through play. But somehow when it comes to eating and feeding, there is no play involved. No play. Um, it's all about compliance. Um, and, and that's just fascinating to me. And the SOS approach to feeding program was really developed out of this transdisciplinary, what's really a transdisciplinary beyond multidisciplinary view of the fact that eating is the most complicated thing we do as human beings. It's the only thing we do that involves all seven areas of human function. You have to have each of those areas working well, and then you have to integrate within and amongst all seven of those areas. And that if we're trying to teach skill in each of those seven areas, uh, we need to do that through the best way that a child learns and, and kids learn through play. So the SOS ap approach to feeding program is about teaching kids how to eat by using play. And we use a very specific theoretical approach that's based on classical conditioning called systematic desensitization. And then we do also use positive reinforcement, but we use natural reinforcers. So in the SOS approach to feeding program, the child is it would not be sat down and said, take a bite and you get to play with this toy or take a bite and you get to have this sticker. Um, Isn't that akin to the ABA approach that I've seen it, floating it, out there? It, it is. Um, and some of the people who do the just take a bite approach um, or the take a bite approach would not probably call it ABA, um, but it's very similar to that. And, and what you see in the field, there's, there's really two major ways to treat kids who have feeding problems around the world. Um, and, and the first is with people who are focused on more operant conditioning, and then those of us focused more on classical conditioning. And so people who are more focused on operant conditioning are really going to just be thinking about 
sit them in the chair, make them stay in the chair until they eat their prescribed amount of food. If they take their bite of food, then they will be given uh, an object reward for taking that bite of food. When they've eaten as much food as they're prescribed, um, then they're allowed to escape the situation. So, so that's kind of one view in philosophy. And in, in the SOS approach to feeding program, we really think about it as um, when children don't eat, it's because something about their body isn't working correctly. Yes. So part yes. of it, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, I'm very excited. We, yes. <laughs> yes. What, what we have to do as professionals is figure out, okay, what about their body isn't working correctly? Sometimes it's major, like there's an actual organ system issue. They have uh, chronic respiratory disease, or maybe they have food allergies or, you know, some kind of endocrine problem but but sometimes it's it's more what's wrong with their body is that their sensory systems aren't working quite right or their gross motor skills aren't quite on tar target or their fine motor or their oral motor and that it's more of a skill deficit issue about what the body isn't working right so so if if we believe that that feeding difficulties are physically based skill driven issues we believe in teaching the kids the skills they need in a way that breaks the skills down into steps that can be accomplished. So, so we talk about um, in the SOS approach, we are a bottom up approach to teaching kids about eating. We start with the smallest component of the skill, we teach that skill, and then we move to the next one and we teach it through play until we get to the highest skill, which is eating. And the folks that focus on operant conditioning, they're taking a top-down approach. The underlying belief in a top-down approach is that the child has the skill to do the task. And, and we don't believe that. We don't believe that kids have the intrinsic skill to do the task because what we know is eating is driven by appetite instinct only for the first four to six weeks of your life. Then it's driven by primitive motor reflexes to four to six months of age. After four to six months of age, eating is a voluntary muscle movement pattern. And after four to six months, you only have three choices. You learn to eat, you learn to not eat, you learn to kind of sort of eat. That's it. Those are your three choices. <laughs> so, so we have to teach kids how to eat we believe from the bottom up versus assuming they have the intrinsic capability to do the highest step on the steps to eating hierarchy. Um, you know, so I oftentimes like it. You just brought me so much joy. <laughs> I, I, how I talk to families about it um, is it, it's kind of like, how would you approach a child who's really afraid of the water? How would you teach them how to swim? One philosophy says you let them play next to the water for several days, put their toes in for several days, go up to their knees several days, their waist, their chest. They put their face in the water, take their feet off the bottom of the pool while you're still holding them. And then you let go and they learn how to swim. That's that's systematic desensitization, a bottom-up approach. In the other philosophy about teaching children how to swim, you have the intrinsic, the belief they have the intrinsic ability to at least get to the side of the pool. So what you're going to do is take them to the deep end and throw them off into the pool. You, you don't, you don't care how they get to the side of the pool. You just care that they get over to the side of the pool. So it's a top-down approach to teaching kids about something, and and we'd rather do it bottom up and have fun while we're doing it. I'm just thinking my daddy would call that the wide oak approach to swimming and he just throws you in and you're going to sink or you're going to swim quite literally. But, um, dear, dear friend, I am very much with you with the bottom up approach that, um, has always yielded better results. Now, can I go, I just have a quick question. I have heard and seen numerous colleagues, um, if the child vomits on themselves because of the, um, of their, during the middle of a feeding session, I have seen where they just make the child wipe it off and then keep on trucking. And I intrinsically do not believe in that approach. I do not think a feeding session should ever push a child to the point that they are overwhelmed, that they vomit. It should be, like you said, fun. Um, is that, it, do you, 
what what is your what is your gut instinct on that and your skilled clinical opinion on that so 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 if a child is throwing up during your session it, you really do need to step back and figure out why um, because children will gag and retch um, during a session for oral motor reasons they'll do it for sensory reasons but but if, if they're starting to gag or retch our belief is that's a signal your play isn't working and you need to back up step back help them get calm back down so you can re-engage them in a positive fashion um, but it, you know there are other philosophies that say you cannot let the child escape the situation because you're doing negative reinforcement and and if you're pushing a child to the point where they're throwing up you're definitely doing negative reinforcement and, um, and and it's highly aversive and what we know is that when something is highly aversive what happens is your adrenaline system is triggered your fight flight fright um, system is triggered and and what we know ab about your adrenaline system is it actually goes to the appetite and satiety centers of the brain and tells your brain to turn off your appetite because adrenaline is a very old system it's designed to help you r run away from predators or or fight off predators and so if, if you're running away from a saber-toothed tiger in the primordial jungle you really don't want to stop and think about the fact you missed breakfast this morning morning. Um, and, and so, so your, your body, literally the adrenaline says, turn off your appetite. You have to focus on running or, or, you know, uh, fighting back. So not only does, does adrenaline turn off your appetite, but you also need to shunt the blood from your digestive system out to your arms and legs. So, so when you activate a child's stress reaction during a feeding situation, you turn on their adrenaline, make their appetite go off, and you shut down their digestive process on top of it. And and to me, as a feeding therapist, that's just shooting myself in the foot. Um, you know, I, I don't know why I would want to do that. I come at it from the philosophy that we need to give the child a little exposure, let them get used to that exposure, master the skill at that level, and then move them up to the next step. And and I'd much rather do it through play and having fun. Um, we laugh every single day. Some days we're laughing so hard we're crying because kids are absolutely hysterical. They are just absolutely hysterical. And and not getting into that adrenaline reaction uh, with the kids. And we know um, from lots of research that children are going to learn this, the, to do the task best in a situation that uses po just positive reinforcement and a situation that most closely mimics where you want the task to be replicated and what kind of situations, environments. We need to teach the kids how to eat at a table with other people around, with their parents present, because that's what they need to do. It really doesn't matter if this child comes into my clinic and or my school and learns to eat for me. Really and truly, it doesn't matter if the child learns to eat for me. Unless I want to move home with this kid, it doesn't matter if they learn to eat for me. What matters is that this child learns to eat wherever they're at, for their parents, for their school teachers, for their grandparents. And, and that requires that you teach skill and that you teach a broad set of complex brain pathways for eating anything, anywhere. And that's really what we do in SOS. Our goal in SOS is not to teach a child to eat a single food. Our goal in SOS, we don't have target foods. There's no such thing in SOS as a target food. Our goal is not to teach kids to eat a specific food to get a toy. My goal is to teach the kids to eat any food out there because they have the skills to do the task. Yes. I'm clap. Okay. So now, yes. You have no idea how badly my personal soul needed to hear that today because I have um, given, 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 given out, you know, when your your cup is empty. And um, sometimes I feel like I'm an anomaly because I, 
I use the bottom-up approach, not in the SOS world, because I'm not certified. We got to talk about that. But it's just... Come to a course. Come okay. to a course. <laughs> I, this is happening. Okay. So, but thank so very much. Thank you. Before my iris starts leaking and I get weepy, you make me feel sane. Um, okay. So how do I, how do I do that? How do I go about adding, I mean, being an SOS certified person has been on my bucket list, but you know, I've been in the world of baby making and child rearing. And um, now that the youngest is almost completely potty trained through the night, like my life is coming back to me. <laughs> so how do I go about being certified in SOS? Right. So it, it starts, it's start at the lowest level, start with just coming to a course. Um, so the easiest way to find out where we're going to be is to go to our website. So that's www.sosapproach.com. And, um, and you can go into the professional tab, look for conferences. And we present somewhere in the world at least once a month. Um, very often once every three weeks or so. And and you can find some place near you where we're going to be, hopefully. Or or if we're not going to be someplace close to you soon, maybe we can you can find some place where you have family or you have friends that you'd like to go visit. Um, you know, we're 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 gonna be in Miami in December. Um, you know, that's somewhat close to you. We're just in Maine, uh, in Rome, Georgia, uh in in September, which is not, you know, horribly far from you. But I know, um, I saw that and I missed that. And that was not in Pac Dawson budget last month. So we're we're we're, we're compiling Pac Dawson budget for um year twenty nineteen. Yep, yep. But is it is it a week long class it is, with like um, and three quarters days and and so um depending on who the host is the price is going to range typically somewhere between 700 and 800 dollars for essentially four days and we go eight to five each of the first three days and then we're eight to 315 on the last day and it's typically a thursday friday saturday sunday in the u.s um, so that people only have to take two days off of work. Um, but obviously when you have babies and little ones, then you're away on the weekend. So we have a number of therapists who come with their families and, you know, so, um, especially our breastfeeding moms are usually having babies come to the conference and ha doing some feeding while we're, <laughs> while we're having the conference, which is a hundred percent okay with us. We have no issue with that. Uh, whatsoever. But but being an SOS trained provider really starts with coming to the basic SOS training conference. Once you do that, we have a series of 10 additional advanced workshops that you can take online at your leisure um, to become what we call a, a basic plus provider. And then we also offer a mentorship program. Uh, where once you take the basic course, you can then do an online 12-week mentorship course where you get additional lecture material um, and you make a video and we watch other people's videos. We watch people doing video of therapy. There's a lot more video in the mentorship. And then after that, you become a certified um, provider and you go through a fairly intensive certification process. Um, so it, it's, but it starts starts with doing the basic course, and many people that's all they're really able to do, and that's perfectly fine. The course will give you everything you need to use the program. Okay. Well, um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for being oh, you, you and for the impact you've had on on me, the tiny humans that I work with, and. Um, just on humanity in general. So yeah, go team. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. You're, you know, you're in a tough part of the country. You're going to find around the U S that different parts of the country are going to be more likely to use one approach over the other. And, and, um, that negative reinforcement approach, um, is a little more predominant in your area. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you're out there as somebody who's doing the systematic desensitization, that sometimes can feel pretty isolative. So, so we got a group together. 
<laughs> we're doing it. I have a village. My village has expanded. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, again, thank you. Um, we have to switch so over. Welcome. We have to switch over to the questions. Yep. So if you can just hold the line, I'm gonna click a button and switch us over. Okay. Great. Sounds good. Okay, folks. It is no big secret that I am a Virginia girl but have relocated, transplanted, and fallen in love with my Palmetto State of South Carolina. As such, I have had the pleasure of serving on my state association for the last several years. And this coming February, February 7th through 9th, it is the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association's 61st Convention. And our convention is being held at the Hyatt Regency in Greenville, South Carolina, the first time learning at the falls. And it's no big surprise or secret that I am plugging everybody to come check out Skisha in Greenville, South Carolina, dun, 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 February 7th through 9th, 2019. On that note, I am going to be very candid and very honest. I am a domestic abuse survivor from my ex-husband. It was a long, fearful at times, but now courageously brave walk that I would not have gotten where I am if it wasn't for the grace of my Lord and the support of my village. So for everybody out there, Please, if you are able to make it to Skisha, bring with you some household goods. This year, Skisha is partnering with Sister Care, which is a local nonprofit organization that supports domestic abuse victims turned survivors and their children. We are gladly taking uh, monetary donations for them, as well as toiletries, no clothes, please, uh, but linens, bed sheets, towels, and, and toys for children. So if you're coming, come get your nerd on, come get your geek on, come celebrate the joy that it is for our profession, but all the while do it with a giving heart and bring donations for sister care. I look forward to our first time learning at the falls with you. See you in February. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.